Welcome to Embargo, intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for normal human beings and trade nerds alike. I'm one of your hosts, Tim O'Toole, and with me today, I'm very excited to have two guest hosts, Laura Luca, um, who is a lawyer in a trade lawyer in Berlin, uh, and Caroline Watson, who works with me at Miller Chevalier. And today, we're going to have a conversation about uh, EU and the U and the U.S. sanctions, uh, and really talk about. We're going to focus on what has happened in the last 18 months. Um, with respect to Russia and kind of the period of really unprecedented coordination. But also, you know, at the same time, there are many similarities between the sanctions. There are also many differences. Um, and so why don't we start by talking a little bit about, to set the scene, let's talk about the background. And so, Laura, uh, I know um, the EU has kind of gone through and, and the member states have gone through a time of unprecedented growth and uh, coordination um, with respect to sanctions. Why don't you talk about the, the pre-February 2022 landscape in the EU with respect to sanctions and just describe a little bit about what EU sanctions authorities were like in that time period. Yeah, um, happy to. So, you know, in comparison to the US, um, I think these Russian sanctions are the most comprehensive um, that we ever had. We did have um, the Iran sanctions uh, in the past. We had had Russian sanctions uh, since 2014, and we had North Korea sanctions and so on. But none of those sanctions in the past have ever been as comprehensive as the sanctions are now. And so, um, not only the it's not only a precedent for the EU legislator, it's also a very new scenario for all the economic operators and the local authorities that have to deal with all the applications and so on. Um, so, yeah, I think we're a few years behind the US where that's concerned, <laughs> but uh, we are catching up. So. Well, and, and in terms of catching up, I mean, I think there is kind of one big hurdle that the EU has that the, the US really doesn't. And and what I'm thinking of there is, can you talk a little bit about how the, the sanctions authorities work with respect to both kind of policy, but then also um, enforcement? Because my understanding is there, you know, while there's maybe one big policy group at the EU level, there are 30 different enforcers at the member state level. Yeah, and that's exactly the issue. You have the EU legislator and they're they're the ones who are implementing the sanctions regulations and they're deciding about them. And with the Russian sanctions, we have seen those coming up almost every two weeks. Um, but the enforcement is up to the member states. Um, and so some member states have been confronted with sanctions regulations um, in the past because let's say if, with the Iran sanctions, Germany was already impacted um, largely by them, especially some, some major companies, uh, but other countries did not have any contact with those, uh, with such regulations in the past. So they did have to figure out, let's in German, we say they have to figure out the wheel uh, from the beginning. So uh, they have to invent the wheel. Um, so, 
yeah and this is a this is a matter um especially what the penalties are concerned and so on um every member state is responsible for enforcing the sanctions and putting on some penalties and there you see a big gap between the different um countries not only on the level of the penalties whether it's administrative uh proceedings or criminal penalties and so on uh, but also on the willingness to implement um such penalties uh and also on the capacities you know not every a uh, country was prepared to have uh, an authority with, let's say, I don't know, um, 50 state attorneys that will follow up such cases. <laughs> so uh, we do see a big backlog in many of these countries. And, and my understanding, too, I, I, we, I, I was actually in Germany uh, with you in um, spring of 2022. And when, when the sanctions regulations were just, or sanctions authorities were kind of just getting started in, in Germany and elsewhere. And there was, there were even questions, you know, not only about um, providing guidance, but who would provide the guidance. And there were, you know, in Germany, but I think in many of the EU member states, you know, it wasn't clear who was going to provide it. And then sometimes guidance was provided and then it was revoked and other, and conflicting guidance was provided. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, I'm I'm not going to name the name of the country because I don't want to trash talk any other European countries. But <laughs> I've heard about one country where the authorities recommend of going to the police if you need advice on the sanctions. <laughs> and I've heard about other countries where the lawyers go to the authorities and say, hey, we have this unclear situation. Can you clarify it for us? And the authorities say, please consult a lawyer. And you're like, but I am a lawyer and I'm asking you because you're the authority. Um, <laughs> So, you know, it's, it, I think you have so many issues on different levels. On, uh, on the one hand, you have this legislation which came pretty fast and there were um, mistakes in the wording and the translation um, or it was unclear how to understand it. Um, so the authorities had to suddenly understand what the EU legislator wanted to tell them. And, and give guidance um, on that to the economic operators, to, to the entities. But on the other hand, some authorities did try to do so. For example, in, in Germany, um, they did make a list of FAQs, but often those FAQs contradicted the FAQs of the commission. Um, so <laughs> which guidance do you follow? Um, they have tried to adopt them, you know, to, to adapt the, the questions that were contradicting each other. Uh, but still, there are some remaining issues where you're not sure um, which FAQs are decisive. Um, and, you know, we, we have we have experienced that at some point the authorities, whereas at the beginning they were trying to help and they were trying to give clear answers and answer as soon as possible. At some point, they would just say, you know what? This is something that you can argue, but at the end of the day, um, we are not the uh, the prosecutor. So we would recommend you to you know um, to distance from from this uh, transaction. So um, you know, yes, you're not the prosecutor, but at the end of the day, if you're not able to tell me what to do, um, and the prosecutors obviously don't know the law as well as those export control and sanctions authorities because the prosecutors have been confronted with this bunch of cases for the first time in their life, um, then who else is going to help um, right. unless we go to court, but we want to avoid that, right? So Yeah, no, that's got, that's got to be just a, a really difficult situation for companies that are just trying to figure out what their obligations are to comply. Um, Caroline, 
why don't we turn a little bit to the pre-2022 um, landscape. And, and here, we'll talk about the U.S. And the U.S. doesn't have these sorts of internal coordination prob problems because, for the most part, you know, sanctions policy from the U.S. is set at the federal level. And, you know, while states sometimes have these laws, they're really not um, all that important, to be quite honest. Um, it's really all about OFAC. Um, but I, the question that I wanted to kind of throw over to you is, in terms of all about OFAC, pre-February 2022, I think if you talked to um, EU lawyers and, and EU sanctions authorities, I think their view on the OFAC and U.S. sanctions authorities would be that uh, it was very um, one-sided. OFAC basically just figured out sanctions policy with respect to, say, Iran, including secondary sanctions on Iran that would govern, you know, German to French transactions, according to OFAC, even if they had no U.S. nexus. Can you talk a little bit about kind of where things were with respect to the U.S. and coordination with the allies uh, prior to the implementation of the Russian sanctions? Absolutely. So prior to 2022, um, most of the U.S. sanctions programs were very unilateral. Uh, U.S. had foreign policy objectives and pursued those with the sanctions programs, regardless of the policies of other allied countries, especially even in the EU. Um, so some of the big programs uh, relating to Cuba, one of the longest standing ones, Iran, Venezuela, um, those were very unique to the United States um, and quite a departure from how the EU has treated those jurisdictions. Um, I believe there's even been mounting conflict in some of those uh, areas where the EU, um, if I, and, and Laura can probably speak more to this, the EU even opposed some U.S. sanctions um, in those countries with blocking statutes. So it, it puts a lot of international companies in quite a conundrum. How do you comply with U.S. sanctions programs versus EU blocking statutes? Um, and, uh, you know, there's just uh, a real difficulty there in navigating um, any sort of business involving those jurisdictions. And uh, that all changed in 2022 with the coordination, I would say, not just in the issuance of sanctions, but also in the enforcement. Um, the U.S. and the EU have really been trying to achieve the same objectives here. Uh, so while there's some key differences in the programs that we'll be going through today, I'm sure, uh, generally speaking, the two sides have really tried to come together and consult before issuing sanctions uh, and before pursuing enforcement that might impact companies with operations in the two. Yeah, that's, that's a really good segue, Caroline. Um, so I think it is fair to say that what we have seen since February 2022 is really an unprecedented level of coordination between the EU and the U.S. Um, why don't you just follow up and start talking a little bit about that, and then we'll turn it over to Laura to, to add um, some context from the EU side. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a couple uh, really big examples of the the level of coordination that's been happening since uh, 2022, uh, starting with the enforcement task force that was created um, between the US and the EU that is unprecedented in regard to sanctions. 
Um, and while the impact of that task force may not be as effective as intended, there's opportunity there for it to increase. Um, then we have a couple other examples. Uh, the price cap sanctions has been a level of coordination and cooperation between the US and EU uh, in a very difficult area regarding energy. Um, it impacts both sides significantly. And they were able to come to an agreement on that and um, you know, have an effective coordinated policy there. Um, and even the way that, uh, or the tools that are being used for this coordination, um, the G7 is being used as a forum to meet and coordinate on sanctions policy in ways that it never was before. Um, so those are just a few of the examples that come to mind with regard to the, the coordination there. And Laura, why don't you talk a little bit about the coordination from the EU side? I mean, from the U.S. side, I think one of the things that it, it just from an outsider observing, it does seem like the, a number of the member states and the EU generally are kind of building a sanctions infrastructure that looks a lot like what we saw OFAC build, you know, probably 15 years or so ago, where they're really starting to build guidance mechanisms. You've talked about it a little already with some of the, the hiccups, but it, it really does seem like these institutions are maturing and coordinating with the U.S. and with them among themselves and, and with the U.K. in a way that we've never really seen before in the sanctions context. Yeah, definitely. I mean, as, as Caroline mentioned before, uh, not only did we not have the level of U.S. sanctions previously, but we even blocked some of them. <laughs> um, but, you know, now with the enforcement task force, I, I think in total they were having over 58 billion assets um, frozen and seized just because the information exchange um, is working way better. Um, and, you know, these are maybe numbers or, or information that you, you won't see made public as much. But I do think that in the background, there is more information and exchange and experience ex exchange um, that we haven't seen in the past, especially what the experience is concerned, because the EU authorities have not been as experienced in um, investigating foreign assets and, and foreign individuals. So I think they have been learning a lot from the US colleagues. Um, and then you mentioned the price cap. Uh, this is also something I think we that we just followed more or less um, the U.S. lead, and you can even see that in the regulation because I think the the currency for the price cap is in U.S. dollars. <laughs> um, so <laughs> we just we just copy pasted it more or less, <laughs> um, which is fine because you know now if we have uh, some questions on how to understand the EU law, we can just ask our U.S. colleagues how they understand theirs, and then uh, we we can you know we can try and. and figure it out if it would be similar in the EU. If, if um, you find any if you find any US colleagues who really understand the price caps, let us know because they've really yeah. been kind of a, a mystery to a lot of people. I we had a whole podcast devoted to the podcast to the price caps when they came out, but they still are very opaque and and so um yeah. but but they do they do ha they do trace back to OFAC, so I guess we we're the ones who are s supposed to roll up our sleeves and figure them out. But I can tell you that from my end, it's not very easy. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no worries. Now, I, I, you know what? I, I actually had a, a a client asking about the price cap again today. But other than that, I think most cases or, or the cases that or the clients interested in the price cap may be um, less and less now because the wind down pe period is over. So, you know, um, I think 
most of them had have already adopted their their businesses and those who haven't well yeah they're, they're still trying to understand it as you said um but then you also mentioned the the g7 and i think that was a, a real big milestone in the whole process because um if you think about it it's not just the us and the eu member states and maybe also the uk that were meeting uh and then you know coordinating uh, russian sanctions but it was also other third countries i mean the, the g7 took part in japan so you know though it was you could see that it was more or less on a let's say more international western level um and not so much just two authorities in the background uh, or you know in the back office trying to figure out what to do with the russian sanctions so um yeah that's a that's a that's a good recap so so and and i wanted to start with kind of the growth and the coordination because i think that is you know one of the big stories of the russian sanctions program over the last 18 months but what we're going to talk about now probably for the rest of the podcast is some of the key differences between the us and eu because you know in, in other sanctions programs it's almost all key differences. But here there's a lot of coordination, but there are still areas where the US and, and the EU diverge. Um, and so we've talked a little bit already about one of them, um, which is you know you have the centralized US system with OFAC, you've got the EU sanctions that are um, left to the national governments in terms of or there's a division where you've got the EU commission issuing sanctions policy, but then the, the local governments have to sort it out. So why don't we move on to the question of jurisdiction? Because I know that in the EU for sure, and really um, in, in the rest of the world outside the US, there's there's been a lot of controversy over the last 10 years or so about the, the broad way that uh, OFAC and the U.S. exercise jurisdiction over transactions that often seem to have little or nothing to do with the U.S. Um, why don't we start with Caroline on the question of U.S. jurisdiction and OFAC's view of U.S. jurisdiction, and then we'll um, turn it over to you, Laura, to talk about the EU jurisdictional theories and, and how the EU exercises jurisdiction and, and kind of where that stands today. Yeah, the, the way that the U.S. exercises jurisdiction here has not really changed with regard to the Russia sanctions. Uh, the U.S. has traditionally exerted legal jurisdiction under sanctions law extraterritorially and very aggressively. It does so when it finds or OVAC finds that there is some kind of U.S. nexus involved in whatever transaction or dealing that it's examining. Uh, and this is a U.S. nexus is broadly interpreted to include situations that might not be anticipated um, by a lot of businesses. Uh, so, for example, you can have U.S. persons involved working at a non-U.S. company and their involvement in a transaction could be interpreted as a kind of U.S. nexus that would lend jurisdiction over the transaction. Um, the use of U.S. Uh, currency is often found to be a basis for exercising jurisdiction over a transaction. And so, you know, even in situations where parties might not expect to suddenly become subject to U.S. law, they find themselves in that situation. Um, and that's just legal jurisdiction. You know, the U.S. also exercises um, secondary sanctions authority in situations where there is no U.S. nexus. Uh, it's a, it's not a legal jurisdiction. It's just a more of a foreign policy um, that can be used. 
and uh, it's it's a very aggressive one in comparison, I think. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, when I was talking about controversy, that's mostly what I had in mind was the, se- the pure secondary sanctions where everyone admits the U.S. has no jurisdiction, and yet mm-hmm. it still imposes penalties on the parties to transactions that don't have any connection with the U.S. under this um, fiction that it's not imposing a par- penalty on the, the party by putting them on the SDN list. It's just telling U.S. persons that they can't deal with them anymore. And so therefore, OFAC has jurisdiction because they can tell U.S. persons what to do. And and then also in the Cuba realm, where the U.S. sanctions apply not only to you know U.S. companies, but to U.S.-owned companies that are overseas, which I think created a lot of the controversy in Europe. So, so Laura, you know, with the U.S. having this broad jurisdictional theory that the um, EU has, um, from time to time, uh, criticized, tell us a little bit about the evolution of EU jurisdiction in connection with the Russia sanctions. Because my understanding is that the EU has been at least slowly moving a little toward the U.S. broad theory of jurisdiction. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. You know, for years now, we have been criticizing the U.S. secondary sanctions and their violation of international law and so on, so on, and, you know, releasing the the blocking uh, um, statute and even on a national level, Germany has a, has a law which is basically pretty similar to the, blocking, to the EU blocking statute. Um, but now with the Russian sanctions, you know, public international law is not so much of an issue anymore. We don't call them secondary sanctions, but, you know, in the basis of it, they're pretty much the same. We have, so the EU has, for example, sanctioned Iranian um, companies who have been dealing uh, with Russia, especially in the drone section, um, you know, claiming that they have been supporting the Russian invasion into Ukraine by by delivering those products to them. So we have sanctioned them. And this are, with the 11th uh, sanctions per package, the EU legislator has also kind of you know threatened countries that keep doing businesses with Russia, or at least companies who have been keep doing businesses with Russia, will be sanctioned as well. That list is still empty so it's an annex but there's no name in it if you you know if you separate the iran companies that have been sanctioned but um you know they they have moved forward to that step and then you know who knows at some point that list will be filled up but um we don't call them secondary sanctions so <laughs> it's completely different it must be fine exactly it's yeah it's one, fine <laughs> it's, they're not secondary sanctions i don't know exactly. what you're talking about yeah um all right. So, so on jurisdiction, it, it sounds like we've got a little bit of conversion or convergence, but but still, I think the EU is kind of moving slowly into this area. What about licensing? So, so licensing. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about licensing in the U.S., Caroline, with respect to OFAC? If you want to do something that is at least facially prohibited by the sanctions, talk a little bit about the OFAC procedure. And before you do, I do want to give a shout out to OFAC on Russia licensing. They have devoted significant resources, and they that the licensing at OFAC has gotten substantially better and is fast and responsive in a way that we haven't seen in some of the other programs. I think it's about resources, but you know when when OFAC does well, we should be sure to to note that on this on this podcast because sometimes when they don't do well, we we know that as well. So why don't you tell us a little bit about licensing, Caroline? Absolutely. And, you know, just as we were very busy when those sanctions came out, I'm sure OFAC was as well. And they did amazing work in handling that volume. Uh, with, with respect to licensing, 
being a very centralized system really helps. Uh, all the licensing goes through OFAC. So the policies and the licensing tends to be very uniform, very consistent, uh, generally speaking. Um, of course, it's based on foreign policy, so there's, there's some variance there. Uh, OFAC uses general licenses quite frequently. And uh, those general licenses are issued um, and, and renewed on a regular basis as well. And so that is something that uh, a lot of companies uh, are able to avail themselves to and um, able to uh, continue doing the kind of business that the U.S. thinks is, is uh, not a threat in any way to national security interests. So there's, you know, various licenses relating to humanitarian interests, relating to um, certain kinds of transactions that the U.S. would encourage. And then there's specific licenses where parties that need to conduct a transaction, transaction can uh, apply to OFAC for a license relating to their specific situation and justify why that should be issued to OFAC. Um, it's not a guaranteed uh, issuance, but uh, if OVAC finds it consistent with U.S. policy, they might grant that. And with Russia, they've been doing so um, fairly, uh, relatively quickly in certain situations. I think we'll probably be getting to the divestment uh, issues and how OVAC has been very um, proactive and um, issuing those kinds of licensing. Yeah, no, I think divestment is a is a topic unto itself. But on the licenses, I, I will say one of the one of the hallmarks I think of how OFAC has matured over the years is that they're, in my view, they do a very good job of anticipating where a general license will be needed when they're coming out with prohibitions, much better than they used to. And so the general licenses go into place at the same time the prohibitions go into place so that so if there's a wind down license but not just a wind down license there are other types of licenses where they anticipate here is the sort of disruption that this prohibition will cause and we don't want it to cause this pro this sort of disruption so we're going to have a general license that's going to carve out the areas that we're worried about disruption and they do it at the beginning so that they avoid what in the past was sometimes the chaos that was caused by a, a SDN designation where they didn't realize that it was going to affect particular types of transactions. And so, you know, three months, six months later, you'd come out with this new general license that would try and address that. But they're, 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 they've been very good, in my view, at anticipating it beforehand and getting the general licenses out at the same time. And the one area of licensing I did want you to comment on as well. So my understanding is that to get a, a, a specific license, you have to have a U.S. connection. And mm -hmm. if you don't have a U.S. connection, you can ask for a request for interpretive guidance. So if essentially I'm a non-U.S. party and I don't want to engage in a U.S. transaction, but I want to make sure I'm not going to get secondary sanctions, but I don't have any U.S. connection, talk a little bit about the requests for interpretive guidance and, and how effective those are. Absolutely. So when there is no U.S. legal jurisdiction because there's no U.S. nexus, um, a lot of parties are, may still be hesitant because of some perceived risk of secondary sanctions. And they want to make sure that everything is going to be okay with uh, U.S. authorities. So in that situation, they might submit a request for guidance to OFAC saying, here is the transaction that we want to do. We don't think that there is legal jurisdiction, but we still just wanted to check with you to make sure that you're not going to be um, you know, against this kind of uh, transaction, that you wouldn't see it as posing a risk of secondary sanctions. 
And uh, it can be, you know, it could take a little while to get a response from OFAC to those kinds of submissions. Sometimes OFAC might be responsive if it um, finds that it's particularly, um, uh, that it warrants a, a fast response. I would think that in situations where it's a humanitarian related transaction, OFAC might be motivated to respond relatively quickly. Um, other ones it might find less uh, crucial in its own view based on the lack of a U.S. connection. Yeah, uh, those, prioritize. those guidance right. requests, I, I agree with you, they're, they're very um, unpredictable in terms of if and when you'll get a response from OFAC. Sometimes you can get a response in a day or two and, and a helpful one. And sometimes you're sitting there a few years later without um, having had anything. And, the, and sometimes people call that a comfort letter. I mean, these comfort mm -hmm. letters come, but they do not come very often or predictably, at least mm -hmm. it's been my observation. So Laura, why don't you tell us a little bit about EU licensing policy? Because I know it's got to be more complicated with all the member states out there. Yeah, again, it depends, you know. Um, there are general licenses on an EU level, for example, in export control of dual use goods, um, the EU has issued general licenses. Um, and then in addition to that, member states can also issue general licenses in specific areas. Um, but regarding the Russian sanctions, the EU has been very reluctant um, regarding general licenses, whereas the US, as I understood, has issued a lot of them. Um, but there have been some, let's say, prohibition exceptions um, regarding humanitarian export of goods for humanitarian purposes um, or export of goods to or provision of certain services, for example, um, subsidiaries of EU companies. But these exceptions fall under a specific licensing procedure, which is up to the member state. Um, so you have to go to your national authority to apply for those um, licenses. And all these leads to a backlog of, of applications. Um, it used to be in Germany that it only took about six to eight weeks to get a license with some exceptions where you could take years. <laughs> but those were like, you know, anything related to China, military and so on. Uh, but for the, you know, for the normal, let's say normal dual use goods, um, you would wait approximately six weeks to eight weeks. Um, now, you know, the first thing they tell you on the phone when you call them is like, please be aware that it may take at least six months. Um, in some cases, we applied for a license a year ago and we have received the response, hi, we are now getting up to your application. Is it still relevant or can we just delete it? <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, think they I think they borrowed that tactic from OFAC because we have things that are pending for a long time. And I and then we get this like, it, we know it's been a long time and you haven't heard from us. Is this still relevant? Because if not, you know, let us know or we'll, we're going to just d delete your application in 10 days. I mean, they, I think that yeah. OFAC like tries to, if it sits on stuff long enough, it feels like it moves it out. And, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, so you see, we're not only copying your your uh, regulations; we're also copying the tactics. So, exactly. but, you know, jokes coordination, aside, right? Yeah, coordination. You know, and, and things to how things can go more smoothly, smoothly at least for the authorities. But you know, jokes aside, I must say that the authorities have just been where they had like twenty applications maybe a week. Now they had several hundred applications a week. Right. 
Um, and they don't have enough capacities. They don't have enough personnel to deal with these uh, applications. And there was like a, a public plea by the uh, president of the National Export Control Authority in Germany, where he said, you know, we are trying to do our best. We are trying to respond to every license, but you would help us if sometimes you would just read the regulation. <laughs> you know, <laughs> some some applications are super is, are so unnecessary. Some questions are just unnecessary. So we are doing our best, but please just don't bombard us with all these questions. Um, <laughs> if it's just a matter of reading the letter of the law and then. Um, clarifying it um so yeah they are doing their best and in, in some other um eu member states you know they have been confronted with this license proceedings for the first time um especially what sanctions regulations are concerned because their industry was not relevant um to such regulations in the past so um they had to you know implement a new system um sometimes uh create a new authority. Um, so the know-how wasn't really there. And I must say for that, a lot of member states have catched up pretty quickly. Um, you know, they're doing their best, I hope, <laughs> even though it's not always the optimum result. Yeah. I mean, I think that 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 is something that we just all have to keep in mind. And I know that it gets frustrating for clients who want an answer really quickly. And, 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 Again, I think OFAC has done a really admirable job of moving quickly on the Russian applications, at least the ones that I've seen. But they are so slammed by all of these applications. And I think one of the things that OFAC has done, and it's my understanding, is that they've moved a lot of people over to, to the Russia desk yeah. and away from some of the other programs. So we are seeing you know, even greater delays in some of the other programs than we saw before February 2022. But the resources are being moved to Russia, but still the volume is just overwhelming in the States. And I mean, you do see a lot of, and I think, you know, to the extent that the, um, that the, the head of the German export agency was talking about reading the regulations. I, I also think, at least if it's like the US, there's also a lot of um, client risk aversion because of the high profile nature of the Russia sanctions. So if there's even the slightest bit of ambiguity, even though you know we would, we would advise that this is likely permitted by the regulations, but there's a slight bit of ambiguity, we'll have clients who wanna go in for a license because they just don't, they're not comfortable with any ambiguity at this point. And you know, ambiguity is almost inevitable. And so I think that a lot of these license applications, at least from the US side that we see are clients who, we know what the right answer is, but they don't want to take it for granted if there's any ambiguity. So they just go in and ask for a license, which increases the volume, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's what you said. They have moved, I think, a lot of personnel from the other licensing procedures to the Russian sanctions um, matters. Um, what the German National Authority has done is that they have simplified the procedures of licensing in some other areas irrelevant to the Russian sanctions. Um, and the hope is that this will create capacities, more capacities um, for the personnel to, to, you know, to deal with the Russian sanctions applications. And they have implemented a hotline where you can call them. Although at some point, I think you don't reach anybody anymore because they're, the phone is probably ringing every day, all the time. Um, but they have tried to do so at the beginning, at least. And they have implemented a, um, a Russian sanctions email account where you can direct them with, you know, just a simple question without having to go through the whole license application process. So 
yeah, there have been some some steps. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's really admirable. And we've noticed, if, if OFAC was wondering, we, we've definitely noticed um, that they have upped their game with respect to the Russian licensing. Um, all right, so let's turn to another topic that um, there's probably some differences, although it's been a high-profile topic, and it is has been a topic that has been um, the subject of a lot of coordination as well. So both in the US and in the EU, um, I think at the political level, there's a lot of talk about essentially taking Russian assets um, or assets of sanctioned parties and using them to rebuild Ukraine. Um, and and it's a it's a good and understandable talking point in the sense that um, you know this is from both sides of the Atlantic viewed as a war of aggression by Russia against Ukraine, and since the point of the sanctions is to impose deterrence on that and to impose penalties on that. Um, it's understandable that one of the ways that the, the, the hopes is that the, the US and the EU will use any assets that are taken through the sanctions to help rebuild Ukraine to essentially repay um, the costs of, of that aggression. Uh, it sounds good. The problem is, is that sanctions, at least on the U.S. side, and and Laura, you can talk about it from the EU side. You're you're not taking assets when you sanction someone. You're freezing, and taking assets is different than than freezing them by a lot on the U.S. side. Caroline, why don't you talk a little bit about the U.S. side and the differences between a blocking sanction, which just freezes assets, and actually what it takes to get the assets so that you can actually transfer them to the Ukraine. Yeah, imposing the blocking sanctions, which is the most commonly used tool by OFAC, uh, just requires OFAC to justify the imposition of sanctions on whatever basis they have or of authority they have. So if they're authorized to impose sanctions on Russian parties involved in certain sectors of the Russian economy, they can do so um, basing that on, on that um, parties' participation there. But expropriation or seizing those assets um, is, a, is a much higher bar for them to prove. Um, that would involve taking, um, first of all, that would have to involve some kind of alleged criminal activity on the part of the sanctioned person. Um, and then the, the U.S. government would have to take them to court to obtain um, warrants or authorization to be able to um, seize those assets. And so without a um, alleged crime, there's not an ability to pursue that option at the moment. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's not very commonly done and, and it, it is a very difficult standard for them to meet. Yeah, it, just um, to flesh, flesh that out a little bit. So you know what we see on the sanction side is someone will be put on the SDN list and their assets will be frozen, at least with respect to any US connected assets. That happens with no process whatsoever. I mean, you find out about it because OFAC issues an email saying the following persons have been added to the sanctions list. And then they sometimes have a press release that describes, at least in part, why they're adding to the sanctions list. To get the to move from to take those assets, not only do you need to do the seizure process that you talked about, Caroline, you still also need to go through a forfeiture process, which is a contested judicial proceeding in most instances. Um, where you actually get a court to rule that the assets are somehow connected to crime. I mean, there's a, a, full, a whole 
uh, forfeiture statute that describes the standards, but to boil it, to make it simple, it's they've got to be, as you said, connected to a crime. Um, and so that's a real, you know, difficult and long process as opposed to the blocking, which is just, you know, you snap your fingers and it's done. Now, I, there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes for blocking, but you don't see it. It just happens from the outside. Um, Laura, why don't you talk a little bit about... Oh, did you want to say something? I was just going to say one of the few instances, I think, in the Russia context that we've seen some um, activity here on the U.S. side has actually fallen under the export controls that are related yep. to the sanctions, where a crime may be a little easier to prove in that yes. instance. And, yeah. and so they've gone after a certain oligarch's property, um, specifically aircraft on that basis. No, that's exactly um, right. And, and it's, and, and they've come up with new theories to do it. So, so not new theories. I mean, um, general prohibition 10 has been around for a long time. And, and that's the part of the export con us export controls laws that says that if you, if any item is exported unlawfully, it is prohibited to deal with that item. And so what they've done with the aircraft is they've made it, any, um, aircraft that is exported to Russia, meaning any aircraft that is flown into Russia or transferred within Russia by flown within Russia, if it's U.S. origin, if it's subject to the EAR, it's, it is now requires a license and nobody's getting licenses to do this. So those aircraft and OFAC, or not OFAC, but BIS sees those on, you know, the, the, the radar and sees that those aircraft have, have either gone into Russia without a license or are moving around Russia without a license. They put them on a list. And then anybody who touches those aircraft and those aircraft themselves are the proceeds of a sanctions or an export controls violation and and become potentially criminal if you know it. And they, the reason that they publish the list is so that it, they can say that anybody who touches that aircraft, who deals with that aircraft, is on notice that it has been the product of an export controls violation. And then it becomes a crime to deal with it. And then that is used as a basis to seize various aircrafts. So, mm -hmm. so that is, it's a new theory that I'd never seen before this, this all happened, but it is one that they are trying to use to kind of bring this within the scope of the seizure and, and forfeiture laws in a way that, you know, just putting somebody on the list and saying that they're an oligarch is easy to do from a sanctions perspective, because there's a executive order from the president and also, you know, CATSA allows for putting people on the list for quote unquote being oligarchs but being an oligarch is not a crime and so just putting somebody on an oligarchs list doesn't necessarily give you much of a basis to seize the assets so uh, you're exactly right caroline uh, they're coming up with new ones and they mostly relate to the export controls laws so laura why don't we turn it over to you to talk about how this whole process is working in the eu because i know there's a lot of coordination on trying to get various russian assets and use them to pay for to rebuild Ukraine, but how's it working over there? Yeah, I mean, we haven't had any experience with this um, in the EU. Um, this discussion has been, um, has not been, you know, the EU hasn't been discussing this with previous sanctions. It's the first time that they have really dis been discussing this um, so intensively. And I, I feel like sometimes it is less of a legal argument that has been going on and more than a, more of a, political argument. Um, but as you said, the threshold of becoming listed is really low. Um, if you see at the reasoning and the listings in the EU, at least they have a reasoning behind it, you know, it's as simple as he's related to oligarch XYZ. Um, but that in itself is not a crime. So being listed does not mean 
that you participated in a crime. You might have, but it's not a proof of that. Um, so, you know, for now, we don't have a procedure that um, would be constitutional um, uh, and where we could uh, use those assets for rebuilding Ukraine. Um, the criminal laws on a national level, they do see the forfeiture of um, assets that have been used in a crime. But again, this is on a national level and not an EU level. And as I said, you have to prove that they have been part of a crime. Um, so you would have to go through a procedure um, that proves that that specific oligarch went, uh, was participating in a specific crime and those assets were part of that. Other than that, um, I don't see this coming anytime soon, I must say. I, you know, the, political, the politicians have been using this as a, you know, it's, a, it's good to hear, yeah, let's use the Russian money to rebuild Ukraine. And it's a, but it's more or less, I think, a wishful thinking. Um, let's see if it develops in the next months or years. But until now, there hasn't been a real um, substantive discussion on how this procedure should look. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it's pretty similar here. I mean, we've got some developed procedures and there's been some at the margins, and particularly, as Caroline mentioned, with respect to, to various aircraft attempt to get assets, but it's not been anywhere near on the scope that it's been discussed. I mean, because, you know, re rebuilding Ukraine is going to cost a lot of money and I don't think that there's um, been, you know, that that it, it, it they've been able to to go after anywhere near the sorts of assets that you would need to 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 really get that started because it is a lot harder to actually get title to the assets than it is to just impose sanctions and block them. Uh, it sounds like the same in the EU. And you would have to, you know, you'd have to um, give the persons influenced by those, uh, you know, the, the, which whose assets have been frozen. You would have to give them the opportunity to defend themselves, yep. to to argue that um, the assets have been frozen with all, with no reason, um, and you know, all this procedure would take up new capacities, new authorities, new yep. procedures. So yep. I think let's deal with the issues that we have now, and then um, we'll see after that. <laughs> Well, on a, on a similar level, I mean, we've been talking about this already a little bit. Uh, it, you know, it, when someone is put onto the list, there really is no process beforehand, usually, at least in the U.S. side. What about after they're on the list? I mean, what's the process in the EU law for trying to get off the list and, and talk about, you know, who, who deals with those procedures and how well established they are? You know, the process of becoming on the list is up to the EU legislator and the bar, as I said, is pretty low. Um, I think with before the Russian sanctions of 2022, I think there might have been like 200 people on the list for Russian sanctions. And I think now it's over a thousand. Um, but there is a procedure in place where you can get delisted. Um, you can submit an application where you can basically um, you have to prove that the delisting uh, was with no reasoning, that there wasn't sufficient evidence um, for, for the listing and also some procedural errors. You can argue that there was not enough, you didn't have the opportunity to defend yourselves or that there were some issues in the, in the proceedings of the listing. The, I think there was one successful delisting um, for the Russian sanctions, for the current Russian sanctions. And other than that, there have been some successful cases 
um, with Iran sanctions and I think also with the terrorist list. Um, this is decided by the European Court. Um, and it takes, you know, it, it can take a few years. Um, the, with the Russian sanctions, I think it only took a few months. Uh, with Iran sanctions, there were some cases where it took around two years, which I think um, is not as bad as one would expect it to be. And they also can claim damages for being sanctioned with no reasoning. Um, so, yeah, there is a proceeding in place. Um, I think, you know, the chances of being successful are less than staying listed, but they do have the opportunity to go through that procedure. And who do you go to? So, so do you go back to the EU commission that listed you in the first place or do you go to a court? Like who, who hears these? Yeah, you go to the court. You go to the European Court of Justice. Uh, to the, yeah. So, um, and then you can apply for 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 a delisting. Got it. Got it. Well, Caroline, why don't you talk about the OFAC delisting process because it is a little bit different, and I think it might be fair to say the odds are even more stacked against you. Yeah, as compared to what Laura has described, um, the process on the U.S. side is not nearly as um, transparent and generally doesn't involve going to the courts. Uh, usually on the U.S. side, uh, you can apply to OFAC to be delisted. And OFAC, you know, says here, submit your petition for delisting, you know, right here. But what happens after that is very unclear. Um, these applications can take a very long time. They can take years to receive any kind of substantive response from OFAC. Um, and with very little contact during that time. Um, and the, you know, the factors that OFAC might use or what might impact their decision on that can be um, somewhat unknown as well. Um, and, and a lot of this is because the standard for imposing sanctions is generally very deferential to OFAC in the first place. Um, so a lot of it comes down to foreign policy. Um, yeah, as, as Laura okay. said, Sorry, there's also, you can say there was a mistake in the facts, you don't have, you know, the correct facts, and, and that kind of argument, um, but it, it still can take a long time to process. Well, and just, and I'm, oh, go, ahead. Go, ahead. No, go ahead. I'm not aware of any ability, um, unlike on the EU side, to seek damages in that, in that context either. Um, you know, you might get off the list, but, you, you know, what you've suffered is uh, not going to be addressed. Right, right. And and I think OFAC tries to avoid the damages issue by, you know, when, when property is blocked, um, the banks or whomever blocks the property is required to pay interest on whatever is blocked. And that is supposed, that is a way that, you know, the argument is you're not being damaged because you're getting interest on your property and it remains your property. You just can't get it back until you get off the list. I, I mean, I just do want to emphasize something that Caroline just said in terms of the challenges with OFAC. I mean, you know, in the EU, it sounds like you go to court. And so you have a new decision maker that's going to review whatever the, the listing was. With OFAC, it's technically called an application for reconsideration. So essentially, you go to OFAC and you, you have to say either you got it wrong or even if you got it right, the circumstances have changed. But it's OFAC that gets to decide whether OFAC was right, which is, you know, as you, you can just, just from saying that, you can see that you're not going to win very often because you have to convince the de decision maker that they messed up. And so, you know, they do mess up. 
and and sometimes they acknowledge that they messed up and take people off the list, but they're not very quick to do that, and it doesn't happen very often. And then you do have some right of judicial review, but it's very limited in the states because you know OFAC is seen as a foreign policy agency, and the courts defer to the executive branch here on foreign policy issues, and so it's very very hard to get a court to second guess OFAC. And but it's you know at least as hard to get OFAC to second guess itself. So it's very as a practical matter, getting off these lists is is pretty hard. Um, but I must well, say, do, oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Just you know, catching up on the on the foreign policy issue because on the EU side, yeah, you can argue that there are factual reasons there was a wrong assessment, but at the end of the day, the um, the council does have a wide scope of judgment regarding the foreign policy issues, yeah. so they can so they can say we are the expert we are the experts on this and we have a wide scope of judgment. So although the court can you know challenge all these arguments and they can review them and so on. Um, it is still pretty hard to argue that the assessment of the EU legislator on the foreign policy issues where they're supposed to be the experts is wrong. Uh, but yeah, like I said, there have been some cases where people have been successful. So, All right. Well, um, hopefully we can move to more of an EU system here in the States because I think having the courts involved is a good thing. It's just, you know, people don't like to admit they're wrong. So so having somebody else look at it and decide whether they were wrong is, seems like a better system to me. Um, but let's talk about another area that is tricky, and that is getting out of Russia. So since the beginning of the invasion, uh, I think both on the US and on the EU side, there has been a policy that companies if they can get out of Russia, they should get out of Russia. But um, as we know, that uh, is easier said than done quite often. So uh, why don't I put it to you first, Laura, just talk about EU policy with respect to divestment from Russia and some of the challenges that you've seen in that area. Yeah, so in, in the EU, you have the, um, you know, first of all, I think many companies have decided with the beginning of the Russian sanctions that they want to withdraw from Russia. So they have been doing so even if they were not obliged to do so. Um, if your company, if the assets of your company fall under some lists, so if they're sanctioned goods um, and you do an asset deal, then you have to apply for an authorization basically to transfer those assets to your buyer. Um, there have been some debates whether this also includes share deals. Um, and there have been, again, we see the differences, EU and the US. In the EU, you have so many member states. So member states have been coming to different results. Germany has had a pretty clear um, position on this. They said share deals do not fall under it, You know, even although at the, at the end of the day, the, the buyer still gets control over the same assets and the same products, but share deals don't fall under it because the wording of the regulation does not cover it. Um, in Sweden, I think the authorities have not had a clear position yet. Um, in Denmark, I believe I heard from a colleague that the authorities say, nope, share deals do fall under this um, authorization uh, proceeding. We, you do need an, an authorization for those proceedings, but they have been you know, handing them out immediately. So um, yeah, these are like, I think the, the, the basic framework of, can I, can I divest from Russia? 
and what do I have to do on a procedural level to do so? And then you have all the practical issues, you know, how do I get the payment for, for the buyout? How do I get the my products out of Russia? What do I have to pay to the Russian state um, to, to get my company uh, sold and, you know, get the at least a, a part of the of the price that I uh, that I put on the sale? Um, so, yeah, at the end of the day, these proceedings have been dragging out for, for months most times. Caroline, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, the U.S. side and kind of the dynamic in the U.S. where the OFAC and the administration favor divestment, but there's some hurdles. Yeah, they, they've definitely had a policy in favor of divestment and exiting the Russian market. Um, however, there was a bit of a hiccup um, recently when... Um, you know, OFAC has issued a general license in the past that allows certain transactions with the Russian government, which is otherwise sanctioned. And uh, the scope of that general license um, appeared to cover situations that might be implicated in divestment. So um, when, when a lot of companies started leaving Russia, the Russian government imposed some measures to make it more difficult uh, to discourage divestment. And uh, that included... Um, limiting recovery uh, in those transactions to about, I think it's now about 50% of the value of those assets, and then also requiring the payment of what we call an exit tax. And that's a payment to the Russian government itself relating to the transaction, usually a certain percentage of that transaction. And uh, the whether that payment to the Russian government was authorized under the general license um, became a question for a lot of practitioners that were advising companies through this process. Um, on its face, it seemed that this kind of situation would be covered, but then um, OFAC issued guidance to the contrary, uh, explaining that the GL was not intended to cover those kinds of payments, and so uh, companies really needed to analyze the situation to determine if a license was required for those payments. Um, and that definitely threw a lot of companies for a loop in figuring out how to accomplish a divestment, which is already so difficult in the first place. As Laura mentioned, there's, there's so many different sanctions compliance issues to consider in that situation. Um, and so this just adds to that, to that pile. Uh, thankfully, in, in handling the situation, OFAC has been, in our experience, very swift in responding to applications seeking licensing or requesting guidance on this specific issue. And I think that speaks to their policy in favor of divestment in the first place. Uh, so they've definitely prioritized, um, sounds like similar to the EU situation you were describing, Laura, where companies trying to do this will receive generally the, the kind of help that they need uh, in doing so. Um, and I think that you know there's a similar situation on the export control side, which is definitely something that is tied to the U.S.-Russia sanctions, the, the high level of export controls. Uh, and in the regs now, it provides that while there's generally a policy of denial for export licensing in these situations involving exports to Russia, that when there's a situation of divestment involving companies from um, most jurisdictions, U.S. and EU, et cetera, um, there will be a policy in favor of granting that kind of a license application. And so I think that when when these issues arise, thankfully, they're going to be easier to solve than ordinary um, because of that policy. Yeah, I mean, I, just a couple of things to add. 
mostly for the, the sanctions nerds who are listening, because I mean that was a great description of the the whole process. I mean, this is these are payments to the Central Bank of Russia, which is a prohibited but not sanctioned party under US law, just to make it more complicated. And they're often quite big. And so on the one hand, you've got, you know, the US foreign policy of, you know, no payments to Russian governmental entities like the uh, Central Bank of Russia, because for policy reasons, the U.S. feels like that is an entity that will help Russia get access to currency that can then be used to fight the war. On the other hand, you have this policy of divestment where you're paying this money to, so that you can get out, and the U.S. is trying to encourage U.S. companies to get out of Russia. And so it really was this area that OFAC had this kind of, on the one hand, they don't like the payment. On the other hand, they want you to get out, and they really tried to resolve that by favoring divestment, but but exercising review over these payments so in the licensing context so that they can make sure that the payment itself doesn't have any specific issues that otherwise make it you know un, uh, uh, undesirable under U.S. law. So it's been a very complex area because of all of these kind of competing policy concerns. And I think at the end, we have to ask ourselves, what would the alternative be, right? Because, I mean, some companies left Russia or wanted to leave Russia due to moral reasons or political reasons. But some companies wanted to leave Russia because they couldn't um, send their products anymore. Everything was listed. So basically, the business with the Russian subsidiary was, you know, total unnecessary anymore. Um, so what the, would the result be if they don't get the license from the authorities to get out of Russia, at the end of the day, they will just decide to leave the company there free, you know, just don't work with it anymore. But at the end of the day, the Russians will still get power or jurisdiction over that company if you don't, if you don't um, uh, operate it anymore. So, you know, at least on the one hand, you, you want to divest and at least get some money for it. Otherwise, you will just leave it there and the result will be the same. It's a great point, and and the one thing that I would add to it, because uh, you know this is this is one thing that that I've thought about a lot in this context, is the Russians set up this exit tax precisely to try and keep companies there by forcing them to violate sanctions in order to leave, so that they would have to go ask for permission to do it, and they I think the hope was that the agencies would be very slow in granting licenses if they granted them at all, and might might put them in the position where. They just have to stay because they can't get a license to get out because they're sitting there waiting. I mean, and so the idea that the Russians came up with this to precisely to put them in the dilemma that we're now in, you know, ought to factor into the idea that that perhaps maybe the um, maybe it, the the agencies ought to be thinking two steps ahead of that and not let the uh, essentially any manipulation of sanctions rules go on by forcing these payments that are going to keep companies there forever because that's the whole point right there the, the russians yeah. have been trying to come up with the the 50% limit on what you can recover and now this exit tax it's try to try and keep western companies in russia doing business there and so if the if the if the sanctions are that manipulable um, ultimately you won't be able to accomplish your your policy goals and so that was when I, when when that the whole exit tax issue arose it kind of arose out of the blue in the US because it, the assumption was that this would be covered by one of the general licenses and then when OFAC said no it's not um, there was a lot of thinking going on about how 
you know, this is going to keep, and, it, and I think it, it has, at least for a short time, because the licensing has been fast, it's kept companies in, but some companies may decide that it's too expensive to apply for a license and it's just easier to stay, and do we really want them staying when they'd rather leave because the Russians have imposed too many hurdles to leaving? So it's, it's, it's you know, we could probably have a whole podcast on the exit tax, but not enough time today to do that. So why don't why don't we turn to the last issue that we're going to talk about today? And, and we're not going to have enough time to really get deeply into that issue either. But one of the, the things that I think the Russian sanctions have um, not caused, but they have exemplified is this convergence between sanctions and export controls. For, for a long time under US law, and I, I think under EU as well, you know, there was a sanctions authority and sanctions were mostly financial, but when it came to goods, you know, manufactured goods and other other items, those were mainly the province of export controls. And at least on the U.S. side, you know, OFAC in the Treasury Department controls sanctions and BIS in the Commerce Department controlled export controls. And until recently, I'd say the last two or three years, it was like they didn't really talk to each other that much. I mean, there's been growing coordination before that, but from the U.S. side, the last two or three years has been this kind of rise of export controls as a as a sanctions tool. So why don't you both talk about that? We'll we'll start with Laura on the EU side, and then we'll turn it over to Caroline on the U.S. side. Yeah, I mean, you know, in, the good thing is in Germany, the export control authority is the same that deals with the sanctions uh, regulations, at least on the products, you know, on the on the financial sanctions asset freeze, we have the Central Bank of Germany, uh, the German Bundesbank, but on the export, on the product side, you have the BAFA, which is basically the same for Russian sanctions and for export control sanctions, uh, for export control regulations and sanctions regulations. Um, but we do see like a, a mixture of of the th two regulations now. I mean, in the Russian sanctions regulation, you would see that they refer to the dual use regulation, which is an export control regulation. So saying any export, any dual use goods are not allowed to go to Russia. Um, then you have products that have not been um, categorized as critical in the past. So because they're not dual use products or um, they're not as critical, um, you know, as we needed them to be in order to get listed. Um, so they have had all these annexes. I think in total, there are like 30 annexes in the Russian sanctions regulations, uh, basically just listing all these products that are not allowed to go to Russia, um, which I think you would say they're not on the, they're, they're on the commercial list. And for us, they were just, they weren't just on, they just weren't on any list. Um, and they have been doing this with the with the with the customs codes, uh, you know, which, which has which has led to all these issues between customs understanding, custom regulations understanding, and sanctions regulation understanding. But I think that's another topic as well. Um, but yeah, they have expanded the the lists and have had a bundle of export control restrictions, sanctions restrictions, and so on, that you don't really keep them apart anymore, at least what Russia is concerned. Interesting. Interesting. Well, Caroline, why don't you talk a little bit about from the US side? It does sound like there's a bit of similarity in the sense that you know we do have BIS that deals with goods from the export control side, and now 
mostly administers the export controls that look a lot like sanctions. Um, but OFAC has a role to play on services, on financial services in particular, but also um, on a bunch of other transactions. And OFAC is the one that actually puts people on the list. I d yeah, I definitely agree that it's been a, a very unique situation where the use of the export controls as a tool has been um, very uniquely matched to the imposition of the economic sanctions by OFAC. Uh, you know, since 2022, in the beginning, we've seen the sanctions ramp up in order to exert more pressure. And I think the export controls on the Russia side have reflected that similar approach. They started at one level and they have increased and increased and evolved um, since that time and may continue to do so. Uh, and I think that they're, they're so that that's the sign of the coordination between OFAC and BIS in the U.S. But I think there's also I, I'm. I forgot to mention that I think this is an area where the U.S. and the EU have also had some coordination is on how to impose these kinds of export controls to prevent the flow of technology to Russia, um, particularly technology that's seen as a threat. Um, and in the U.S. export controls, at least, there are some references to um, allied countries, the EU countries, um, where we say, you know, U.S. export controls are not going to apply in this situation when they're controlled by another authority, we leave it to them. And that's something that's fairly unique um, under the U.S. regulations. Usually export controls just apply. Um, and so you, could, you can see that, that level of coordination there. It's, it's unprecedented. Um, and with regard to kind of the level of U.S. export controls, you know, they started um, a little less, lesser in, in 2022 in the beginning, and they've ramped up now to cover so many items, you know, generally every item that's on the commerce control list. Um, and then now it's expanded to a number of items that are even beyond that, similar to the EU. Um, and it's also being, um, that list of items is being described using customs codes because there's no other codes to use. There's no export control numbers for these items. Um, the list is currently at like 67 pages, I think. And that's like well over a thousand items. Uh, including some consumer type products. Um, and so it's it's definitely a challenge. It's a situation where there's not a complete embargo on exports to Russia, unlike some countries subject to US export controls. But it is very difficult to determine, uh, you know, is your product restricted for export to Russia, or even situations where US export controls are more extraterritorial in covering foreign-made items that have U.S. content. The rules there have also been changed to become very complicated for Russia um, and incorporate a lot more um, items that otherwise wouldn't be subject to U.S. export controls. Yeah, the one thing that, uh, you know, has kind of been a part of the increased use of export controls is that they, the, the BIS from the U.S. side is is incorporating these sorts of import principles, so customs harmonized tariff codes, the doctrine of country of origin and substantial transformation. All of this stuff is import law. Like I, I thought I was never going to have to learn import law. I'm an export lawyer. That's Richard Mojica's uh, field. Um, but now, you know, it, you really do have to brush up on your harmonized tariff codes. Uh, is, I'm assuming it's the same from the the EU side as well. That that's how these are these restrictions are being categorized is that right Mom? yeah exactly it's it's uh, it's categorized by you know the the european customs code um which i think is 
basically what you call import law. Um, yep. So yeah, and this this has so suddenly you know companies who have just been dealing with customs law they now have to learn sanctions law, and companies who have just been dealing with export control and sanctions law now they have to learn uh, customs law. So and the same goes for the lawyers. That's <laughs> so, right. Uh, <laughs> it's a brave yeah. new world. Yeah, and then you know and. and when we had the luxury good list, um, it was so extensive that we were wondering how this happened. There were like wicks and rubber boats on it. And we're like, is this really so important for Russia that we have to sanction it? But there was a rumor that basically the EU legislator just copy pasted the North Korean sanctions list. Um, so there were like, <laughs> you know, several hundred items on it that weren't that relevant for Russia, but it just have to be. It just had to be fast. So, so we just just copy paste it. Another yeah, regulation. You've already got a luxury good list laying around. You might as well exactly. use it. Re, just reuse it. Um, well, I think we're going to leave it here. So, uh, Laura, thank you for coming on the podcast. Really enjoyed talking with you. It was a pleasure. And Caroline, thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening, everyone. And stay sanctions free. Produced by HeartCast Media.